Well, good evening and welcome to uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine uh, here on Blog Talk, whether you're across town or across the globe. I'm your host, uh, Karen Tate, and I want to thank you for tuning in with me tonight and uh, let you know that that little snippet uh, that we open the show with tonight uh, is called Peace, Salome, Shalom by Emma's Revolution. So tonight, uh, I think I have some interesting things for you. Uh, Our guest uh, is uh, Andrea uh, Matthews, and um, we're going to be talking about a topic we call a mistaken uh, Christianity. Uh, Andrea is a psychotherapist, author, radio show host herself, uh, and uh, we're going to discuss with listeners the topic of mistaken Christianity, as I mentioned, uh, which uh, reconsiders long-held traditional teachings of the Bible and its root language, uh, how we got to a place where there's more fear of evil than love of and from God, which um, maybe leads to the hate and ugly we see out there in the world. Um, Our conversation may help you rethink some of what we think or hear Jesus said. Uh, We're going to talk about the end times Uh, as well uh, as uh, what Jesus said about reincarnation. Um, Lots of uh, interesting stuff uh, for us tonight. Uh, Also, um, Pat, our roving reporter, has sent in an article that um, I believe uh, you will enjoy. And I have some good news about the uh, positive effects of solidarity, uh, which I'll share with you after my uh, chat with uh, Andrea, which uh, we will do in just a moment here. But uh, first, I have something I'd like to uh, read to you. It comes from Eileen Workman, uh, and if you're a regular listener, you might recognize that name. She was on the show recently. Uh, We spoke about her book, Raindrops of Love for a Thirsty World, and uh, she sends out these uh, weekly droplets, and uh, there was one that came out recently that uh, touched me, and I thought, hmm, I want to save this and share it with listeners on my radio show. So uh, here it is uh, from uh, Eileen Workman. She says, quote, Beloved, on a world where everything spirals around and around, true wisdom lies in the realization that there is no escape from the thoughts, feelings, or material creations that you are sending forth. Therefore, I encourage you to slow down, to pay attention to the feedback you're receiving from the world, and to course correct as soon as you notice that what you are doing is causing harm to the interconnected web of life which contains yourself." Um, I guess that felt so relevant uh, because I'm so focused these days on our thoughts creating our reality and uh, the mind over matter ideas that uh, science is actually proving. You know, we do create our own reality uh, with our thoughts. You know, we create our reality bubble. And uh, so we really do have to be conscious and aware of what we're thinking, what we're doing, what we're saying. And as uh, Eileen said, it's so important that we course correct. And uh, I think we really have to focus on what we want to create out there uh, rather than 
maybe what we're afraid of or any negative emotions that uh, that creep up, you know. Uh, maybe think about uh, gratitude. Uh, think about um, hope and the possibilities. Think about all of the people uh, that are awakening in the world. Um, you know, think about, um, you know, all of the like-minded people out there that are uh, standing shoulder to shoulder with you, even though you might not be able to see them every day, um, who are striving for that new normal as well. Because, you know, I really do believe we are in the majority, even though maybe some of the minority uh, might have some louder voices. So that's from Eileen Workman and uh, from Raindrops of Love for a Thirsty World. So uh, turning uh, our attention to uh, tonight's show here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine and uh, Andrea uh, with our topic, uh, Mistaking Christianity, I want to tell you a little bit uh, more about Andrea uh, by way of her bio before we start our chat. Uh, Andrea is a poet, author of four books, radio show host, inspirational speaker, and counselor, educator, as well as a practicing psychotherapist. Her latest book, which we'll talk a bit about tonight, um, is titled Letting Go of Good, Dispel the Myth of Goodness to Find Your Genuine Self. And that's an interesting title. We'll uh, have her uh, explain all of that. And uh, that uh, is just came out last month in August. Uh, for the past nine years, she has hosted the very popular Authentic Living show, uh, on which uh, she has interviewed some of the world's most prolific, best-selling authors and uh, entertainers. And for the past 20 years, she's run a thriving private practice in which she offers transpersonal and uh, cognitive therapy for a variety of diagnoses and issues. And she spent years in the study of the sacred texts of the world, including the root language of the Bible, ultimately obtaining a Ph.D. in interfaith and interspiritual studies. So uh, we have a lot to talk about. So, Andrea, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really am looking forward to our talk. Well, you know, I'm so glad I reached out to you because truth be told, um, I get your uh, email notices of the shows that you do uh, on your uh, your own uh, radio show, Authentic Living, and the topics um, very often uh, intrigue me, and I think, oh, I'm going to tune in, or, uh, you know, I'm going to, I've wanted to, I guess my point is I've wanted to invite you so many times, and I'm glad I finally stopped and actually, uh, stopped what I was doing and actually did it, <laughs> um, <laughs> because I I love the, I love the stuff that you talk about on your show, um, and uh, it, and it's nice to meet a, a sister a radio show host that's been on the air uh, as as long as uh, you know as you have as well. Um, you know, it, it, that's it's quite a labor of love to keep this kind of thing going so long. Yes, it is, and and I appreciate your interest in my work, and I really uh, enjoy your work as well. This uh, show bringing forth the idea of the sacred feminine is one of my favorite topics, so I really appreciate it. Well, good, good, good. Um, now, one of the things you said that um, that 
uh, encouraged me to um, talk to you about this particular topic tonight uh, was you said, uh, speaking of the feminine, the mistake in Christianity is an absolute distortion of the feminine and that it teaches its followers to listen only to the external instruction of the leadership rather than looking to the internal or feminine for original thinking, intuition, and sacred guidance. You know, I hadn't actually thought about that. Um, uh, I, I, I wasn't sure, uh, quite honestly, that there was much feminine there. But by your statement, I guess maybe I haven't looked deep enough. Well, I think from on the surface of it, what we see in the in the um, in the mistaken Christianity, and let me let me clarify first that. There is a Christianity that I call Christianity, which is more about the Christ nature within us, um, more a little bit like the Buddha nature or the divine self, which is it refers to in the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, that that there is an inner being, an inner essence to us that is very holy, and uh, we don't in the in in the in the mistaken Christianity. There's not an honoring of that inner inner spirit. Rather, we're to turn externally to the Bible, which is considered to be inerrant, or to the leadership. Uh, and, and really, when you look at the, the when when you look to the Bible, you only look to look at the interpretations given by the leadership. So really, you're still just looking to the leadership. So you know, right. you get all of your information from the leadership, and the leadership tells you how to think and how to feel and how to live. And there's no room in there for original thinking. There's not, not much room for empathy because empathy comes from the inner person, which is the feminine self, um, and and so there's not much room for that. And really, it's there's even an idea out there that's very very prevalent in the mistaken Christianity that if you listen to yourself, you could be listening to the devil because the <laughs> devil might be whispering in your ear, you know, telling you evil things that you might, you know, and so the devil can can trick you into believing that the Bible says this when really the leadership says it says this, and so you shouldn't be listening to yourself, you should be listening to the leadership. And that right, what right. Makes, that's what makes it a mistake in Christianity, because that's not at all what Jesus taught. Um, Jesus right. was very much about the inner person. Well, and I and I think what passes for Christianity today, or at least shall, shall I say, the loud voices of Christianity today, uh, the you know the prosperity gospels of the TV evangelists, the uh, uh, you know the people saying you know uh, cities are being devastated by hurricanes because of sin and liberal ideas, and and I mean none of this sounds anything like um, like Jesus to me. Uh, to me, Jesus goes hand in glove with the sacred feminine, and uh, none of this uh, at all. I, I wonder how they can even justify calling it, uh, you know, Christianity after Jesus when it's it's uh, so unlike, uh, you know, Jesus and I, I, at least what I think he taught and said. Yeah, I think that began with the original translation of the of the Bible, of the text of the Gospels in particular, and then the canonization of the letters to the church, which the letters to the church were meant to be letters to the church. They weren't necessarily meant to be the Gospels. They weren't necessarily meant to be a kind of final truth or a, a holy doctrine or a, certainly not a dogma. 
they were meant to be letters to the church that talked about the culture of the time and talked about the, you know, what what was expected of the church at that time. Um, and and so, but it, once it got canonized, then it was considered to be a, a part of an inerrant work of God that only God had written, and that, that was a part of it. The other part is that we've we've taken some of the the original translators lived in a in a political environment that had already decided what was true and what was false, and so when they translated uh, the Bible, they had to go along with that political idea, and so words that have a whole different mystical meaning uh, were thought to mean something that the political environment of the time would have agreed with. And so, you know, that's a big part of it. For example, the word righteousness, when Jesus says your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees, um, that word, every time it's used, is is a word that uh, actually in its root language means only Christ truly. It does not mean righteousness as we think of it as sinlessness today. We think in terms of sinfulness or or sinlessness. And we think that righteous means, you know, you don't sin. But actually, uh, it means only Christ truly, which means living in the Christ nature, living in the Buddha nature, living in the divine self. They're similar terms. And uh, so... Uh, Jesus in Jeremiah, there was a prophecy that said that the the, the law would be written on heart, the hearts of men, and that's what it's talking about. That there that, that if our hearts would would take the lead instead of our instead of us trying to obey a moral code, we would operate out of our most genuine selves, which would be the truest nature of who we are, and then we would uh, be operating and in a sense of uh, truth and genuineness instead of uh, the falseness of trying, striving after something that's not really true. Uh, another verse in Psalms 46.10 says, uh, uh, cease striving and know that I am God. Well, the first step in that is to cease striving. Well, how are you going to cease striving in your, if you're trying always to obey a moral code? The way you can cease striving is to live in the Christ nature, to live in your deepest self, to live in the divine self, in that Buddha nature, that that deepest essence of who we are. But that's not what's taught in the mistaken Christianity. That that would be, in their minds, that would be a mistake to look to your inner self because in their minds the inner self is naturally sinful. We were born into original sin, and therefore our, our, our deepest essence is sin. And so we should not trust that because it will lead us to sin. And that's just exactly the opposite of what's taught in the Eastern religions and what's taught by Jesus' root language. When you look at his root language, he's actually teaching us the same exact thing that's taught in the Bhagavad Gita and uh, the sutras of the Buddha, Buddhist faith and the Vedas and some of these other texts where where we're really taught to just get in touch with and, and be living from our deepest essence. Okay, so so basically if I could sum up what you just said there, um, the... Um, Organized religion, the authorities of the church, tell us not to listen to, um, you know, our inner self because our inner self is um, innately sinful. Where, uh, but but that's the opposite of what Jesus said because Jesus said, you know, to go within because we, you know, we uh, we aren't innately sinners and we can actually trust ourselves. But the leaders of the church. 
uh, I guess in their quest to be relevant, um, and those are my words, you didn't say that, in their quest to be relevant, to have control, uh, they don't want us to trust ourselves, and they want us to doubt ourselves that we aren't, in, uh, that we aren't indeed, uh, you know, truly um, good and generous at heart, uh, at our core. Yes. Yes, and I would say there are certain some leaders of the church who are just trying to follow a doctrine they got taught, and they're innocently trying to follow that doctrine, and they think that they're doing the right thing by following that doctrine. On the other hand, there are other leaders of the church who truly are modern-day Pharisees. They are vipers, in what Jesus would have called them vipers or whitewashed tombs. They are people who are hypocritical. They are, um, they are in it for the money or in it for the power or both. And they are really deliberately misleading a population of people to their own for their own sake. And so, you know, we are instructed to not, to follow leaders uh, based on their fruits. And so, if we look at the the, the leadership that ha- that might be innocently, you know, casting down mistranslations, those people are going to sh- demonstrate love. And that's one of the fruits, of, the first fruit of the Spirit that is mentioned in Galatians, that the fruits of the Spirit, the first one mentioned is love. Um, and, uh, but, but the fruits of the, 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 these other false leaders, these wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus would have referred to them, are, they're, you know, their fruits are hate, and their fruits are greed, their fruits are um, hypocrisy. These are the fruits, and we're supposed to know our leadership by its fruits. And so we need to be, as, as, as followers, we need to be very cognizant about who we're following. But that requires original thought, which means that we have to go within to really figure stuff out. We need to listen to our intuition. We need to listen to our discernment. We need to pay attention to the signs that are going on. We need to really see what's happening and pay attention, use our observational tools. But, but there's, we're taught not to do that. Because to do that might be getting in touch with the part of you that is evil. So that could be the devil just telling you not to listen to that leader who's really a wolf in sheep's clothing. So that's well, like we're... And- Go ahead. Well, and, and I know t- I, I know too from people I've interviewed here that uh, you know, uh, like women who've escaped from the Quiverful movement, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and others as well. You know, uh, you know, they often tell their um, you know their congregations that even doing things like meditation or yoga. Uh, opens you up to, um, you know, having the devil uh, come inside you or some crazy thing like that. Yes, absolutely. It, it, because the devil whispers in our ears and he tempts us and he's always trying to trick us into doing the wrong thing. So you can't trust your inner self because he could be whispering to you. How will you know? I mean, it's, yeah. it's real trickery. It's real trickery. And, it, and, and the, you know, the 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 interesting thing about the word devil is uh, the word is diabolos, which is a Greek term, and it means to throw out without uh, attending to that which is thrown out. Uh, in other words, I'm throwing something out, but I'm not really paying much attention to what I'm throwing out. And what's thrown out there is our soul. So that is the devil. That 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 you know, if there is a devil, it's not a a, a human-like entity that says, you know, uh, uh, that tempts us and, and, and draws us aside, but rather it's, our, it's that part of us that wants to 
drops out of our soul. It wants to deny us access to our own soul. And that's, you know, that's what the devil actually is. And the word Satan is actually used many times in the Old Testament without um, referring to any kind of entity. It's just, it just means accused. Anytime, uh, several times the word accuse is used in, in a sentence about some person accusing another person, but it's the same word, Satan. So the word hmm. Satan means to accuse. And it, uh, so what's happening there is we accuse ourselves of not being the divine beings we are. And that's what I, when you look at the root language of the gospel, that's what comes true, comes forth is that um, Jesus was trying to tell us that we also are divine beings. He was a divine being, and we also are divine beings. And uh, what he was trying to say is, you have what I have. He said, greater things than these shall you do. So what he's saying is, you'll do even better things than I've done because I'm leaving. I'm going back home to the Father. You're going to be able to exceed what I've done. Why? Because you are a divine being as well. And that's what he was trying to teach us instead of right. what, was it, what our leadership today is trying to teach, or so much of the leadership today in the mistaken Christianity is trying to teach that we are not divine beings, that to say we're divine beings is blasphemy, and that we should never listen to ourselves because that would be to to be misguided. Well, and when you gave the definition of the devil, um, it was like, what, Diablo or something like that? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then, and, and then you described it. It sounded to me like uh, discernment, in a sense, um, mm-hmm. and and it feels like you know just listening to you to kind of uh, it, it feels. I, I, I guess my the, uh, it, it, it's that they the leaders don't don't want people to have discernment. Uh, they want to do all the thinking for us. They literally want people to be sheep. Uh, to yes. you know, be let be led around by the nose. Yeah, and one of the things Jesus said that I really love is He said, "My sheep will go in and out of the fold," which I, I really think that's a fascinating statement. He didn't say my sheep will always do exactly what I want them to do because I'm the authority and they're going to always do. He said they will go in and out of the fold, which means that sometimes we're going to leave the fold and, and try to explore life on, in, in a different way, and then we'll come back to the fold. And, and I think that's beautiful because what it does is allow us the, the power to think originally. And discernment is that ability we have to, to observe what's going on externally while simultaneously observing what's going on internally and put the two together in a way that helps us make a decision. So I can right, watch what you're right. doing and feel something about what you're doing and then make a decision about what I'm going to do with it. And that, 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 that power gives us the, the power of original thought, and it is personal empowerment. But the church leadership of today very commonly is teaching us, particularly in the viperous leadership, which is very often about, uh, you know, the, the, the big organizations that want to – Doc, uh, uh, control the doctrine, control the theology, control the the uh, hierarchy of the church. They want to control what's happening in your la- neighborhood, local neighborhood church, so that you you can only have one particular kind of thinking. They even hand out uh, booklets that you're supposed to teach in Sunday school. There's no room for original thinking in there. 
Yeah. Well, what do you think um, are some of the, uh, you know, uh, teachings of the leadership that um, are the, you know, specifically, I mean, because we're kind of talking in, with, you know, wide brushstrokes here. Um, can you think of, uh, you know, two or three kind of uh, concise things that uh, would reflect mistake in Christianity? Yeah, well, what I'm thinking about right now, um, I'm not sure if this is what you're looking for, but one of the things I'm thinking about right now is the, uh, the preaching that says, do not be unequally yoked with non-believers. Now, that's in one of the letters to the to the ancient churches. But, uh, you know, it, it, the, when, it, when you look at the root language there, it doesn't mean necessarily what it's interpreted to mean. Basically, uh, what they're taught, what the church members are taught is, you don't want to hang out with non-Christians. Even if they're very loving and very supportive and very honest with you, you don't want to hang out with them because they're of the devil. You want to only hang out with Christians, okay, in your church. So what that means is that uh, a lot of church members are not going to talk to each other because they're afraid of judging. There's a lot of judgment in the churches because it, because everybody's going around looking for everybody else's sins because that's the doctrine that gets passed down is that, you know, we're focused more on sinfulness than we are on love and on kindness and on support of each other. And so mm. everybody's afraid of being judged, so nobody's going to talk to anybody. So what happens is people get isolated in their misery, in their pain, in their suffering. They get isolated. So they're not going to talk to church members because they're afraid of getting judged, and they're not going to talk to people that are outside the church because they're afraid they'll be unequally yoked with a non-believer. So they, so they don't talk to anybody. And then they're isolated in their concerns, which is the exact same thing that happens to an abused spouse when, you know, when she, very typically she, is um, is uh, isolated from friends and family. She's left to suffer alone in her misery, and she doesn't know what to do. She's left with her own conflicting thoughts about what to do about her spouse. But he's the only one she's got. So all the people in the church have is the leadership. So that. That's a, it's a form of spiritual abuse And I think right. spiritual abuse Is abuse of the spirit it's a, it's a way of saying Don't go inside yourself and get information Listen only to the leadership So it denies people access To their strongest Most powerful guidance And, and tells them to listen only To the external guidance of the church So that, that's yeah. one of them That I think is bad leadership Right, right. Now, when when we're talking Christianity, I mean that's such a big umbrella. Um, are are you applying this to uh, the church in general, or particular uh, groups of Christians? Uh, it's it's the church in general, but it's also the the cult like nature of some some uh, a major portion of the Christian church at this point in time in our history. Because a major portion of that church is teaching the doctrine of sin and hell and, uh, and is teaching people that they need to be afraid of evil and they look for evil everywhere and they're always to be afraid that the apocalypse might come and so they're always on the lookout for that. And so it, it, it's a doctrine of fear. And yes, it is in the larger churches where uh, a lot of the churches have... Um, uh, like I said, a, 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 a conference that leads them. 
So, like, for example, the Methodist Church, I'm not saying the Methodist Church is guilty of this, but it's an example of what I'm talking about. They have a conference, and everything that, that is taught in the lower churches is agreed upon in, the, up in that conference. And, and the Baptist, Southern Baptist Church has a conference that they attend, and they, all of them make agreements about what's supposed to happen in the local churches, and they pass that information down, and, and everybody's supposed to do what that conference says. I think that's very dangerous because it leaves no room for original thought. And if you go against the doctrine of that church, then you, you could be cast away from the church. For example, if a local church wants to agree to perform gay marriages, then that, that goes against the dogma of, a, of the uh, agreed-upon creed by the, the larger church, and, and that church can be kicked out of that conference. And so, therefore, um, they don't do it. So um, so let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the church's relationship with women, you know, in particular. Um, w- you know, when we talk about the mistaking Christianity versus, you know, the root language in the Bible that's been overlooked, um, how did the church become... Um, uh, you know, so hard on women. I mean, uh, and, you know, can we point to things in the Bible uh, where, you know, it's been maybe intentionally distorted uh, to put women in this, you know, second-class role? Well, I think women have been in a second-class role, period, regardless of whether uh, it was a Christian religion or not. I think that's been... Uh, one of the biggest problems that women have had since time immemorial that they've been cast into a secondary, uh, even, you know, uh, servile role, and men were considered to be above women and uh, in many religions. So I think that's a worldwide problem. So there's that. Um, add to that the fact that in the Christian religion, it's, Eve was considered to be the, the initiator of all sin. And so, therefore, women should be punished. And, and there's even a, a phrase in the in the in Genesis that says that you know she would uh, serve only her husband for the rest for you know for all time. But actually, that phrase doesn't mean that does the word husband is not the word there. It's actually that phrase means nothing about women or men. It's talking about the the archetype, the masculine archetype and the feminine archetype, um, where the the internal would bow down before the external, and the external would rule the internal. And that's what happened as a result of our decision to uh, believe that we were separate from the divine. And we began to believe that the external was the answer instead of the internal, and the internal is actually the answer. So, uh, so we twisted those words to mean that women should be servile to men, and and so from time from from that time forward women have taken a secondary role and uh then but you, but you see in the bible and the in the gospels you see jesus um interacting in, with women in in ways that demonstrate that he saw women as equal to men for example um he healed the woman with a 40 year, 20 year menstrual flow um and um actually she reached out and touched his garment and what was what should have happened, according to the Pharisees, is that he should have, uh, you know, gone immediately and been cleansed because she was considered to be unclean. Any woman who was in her cycle was supposed to be unclean, 
And any man that was touched by a woman who was in her cycle was also considered to be unclean. Therefore, he should have gone immediately and gone through a ritual cleansing. But he didn't do that. He turned to her and went to find her in the crowd and told her that her faith, not him, not his power, but her faith would make her whole. So he gave her the complete power. And so that's just one example. He, uh, you know, he uh, had women disciples. Uh, some of those went to his grave, and they were the first ones to hear from the angel, and they were told to go and tell the other disciples. Now, what that means is that they were, they were telling the disciples a, you know, a revelation. They were giving a revelation that came directly from the divine to the other disciples, to the male disciples. And uh, so what that means is that they were, they were given the power to be the revealers of great, insightful, divine truth. But we're taught, we, today we think women aren't allowed to be preachers in churches. So Jesus right. demonstrated that women were equal to men, but we don't look at that. That's just like buried somewhere deep in the bowels of, uh, of doctrine. Um, but that's, I mean, there's several examples of that in the, in the Gospels of how Jesus honored women and, and found them to be just as, as equal to men. And well, and, and and yeah, and I, I I'm aware of that, and it's and it's incredibly annoying. I mean, I'm uh, I call I, I mean I consider myself a goddess advocate now, but I was born uh, in Louisiana in the Bible Belt as a Catholic. You know, sometimes I consider myself a recovering Catholic, um, and uh, I, I mean it's just amazing to me that uh, the patri- the patriarchy was willing to was was able to get away with this, you know. Um, it, 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 I, I don't know any any thoughts on how they managed it. Well, I think we helped them. Unfortunately, we we internalized a lot of that stuff about who we are, and we're still dealing with it. I mean, I see it every day in therapy. We're working with women who who uh, consider that they're somehow less worthy than men, and and um, that's it's like gotten into our psyches, and it's hard to. It's now become sort of archetypal that we just somehow believe that, even though it's not true, and we would fight against it with our conscious thinking. But but there's a lot of that still there that we hold ourselves back because we might be afraid we're going to hurt the ego of some man, or we we or we um, decide not to take a particular job because it might offend our husbands, or might make more money than our husbands, or you know those kinds of things that we're we're still deciding that we should be less than. And uh, yeah. so we we've we've helped with that, unfortunately. So we um, we we've made that we we got into this dance with men, and we have to take our responsibility for that. We got into a dance with men where men said we're superior, and women said, "Oh, you must be," and we agreed to it on some psychological yeah. level. And uh, and so now we're not agreeing to it anymore, and that's why there's such a backlash now, politically and uh, socially. That is is basically saying men for men saying, you you know you're not we're not going to have that and that's I believe why Hillary was received such a tremendous amount of backlash and and uh, investigation and all that kind of stuff that was meant to keep her down because I think regardless of whatever else she's done she's a woman. 
Right, right. Well, and um, and you know, and I don't know if you have any thoughts about this, and you know, and and if not, we'll we'll, we'll just go on because I do want to get to talk more about your book. But um, you know, I've uh, been thinking a lot about um, how Calvinism um, uh, is intertwined with capitalism. You know how the prosperity gospels seem to give license to. Um, uh, the church not sort of, uh, uh, you know, being the, you know, the, the place of morality that it once was to try to help the poor, try to help workers. I mean, there's even this great book out um, that I was reading the synopsis recently about how uh, industrialists of the 30s and 40s poured all of this money into um, trying to take the social witness of the church away um, because, you know, uh, by social witness they meant that, you know, the, the, the church was progressive and it was, uh, you know, trying to set a tone for, you know, there, could, there shouldn't be corporate domination and exploitation. Uh, and so, you know, so, you know, Christianity got intertwined with uh, capitalism and uh, I, 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 and I guess I just wonder what you know you you think about that you know and and I often wonder if maybe that's why the Scandinavian countries have managed uh, to do better by their people um, and you know not get caught in this trap of capitalism because um, you know they're not dominated by these uh, you know these Christians that you know, see Christianity and capitalism, you know, intertwined. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how that started. I wish I knew more about the history of how that started. But what I sense, and this could be very wrong, so this needs more exploration, but what my sense is that the law of attraction had something to do with that as well. So when the law, the whole idea of the law of attraction came out in the late 18, uh, 1989, 1988, somewhere in there, it became more popular. That whole idea took hold in the New Age, New Thought, Human Potential movement, and it sort of leaked over into the church. So that, so that the, the uh, then it was instead of the churches believing that money was the source of all evil, it, it began to believe that money was a part of our reward for being a good Christian. And uh, of yeah. course. You know, there's no evidence of that. <laughs> you know, there's lots of good Christians out there that are struggling financially, but um, it, it 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 is a magical thinking. It's a way. You know, survival is what we're doing here on this planet, and the law of attraction came came out as a part of magical thinking to say, well, if I if I think good, you know, positive thoughts all the time, I'm going to attract a lot of money. I literally have had people come into my office and say, I've been trying really hard to think really positive all the time and I don't have my million dollars yet. And really what they're saying is this should be the reward for my for my I've got some magical thinking going on here that says button the universe is going to comply with what I wish for. And it just doesn't work that way and there's more evidence, much more evidence of that than any than any idea that if we just go around thinking positive all the time we're going to get rich. But that idea has spread over, in my view, has spread over to the to the church, and now the church is espousing that as well. But that's also an ancient idea. You know, that's one of the things that Job had to ca- counter with when he lost everything. 
lost all of his money and all of his cattle and all of everything. And, uh, you know, his friends came to him and said, you sinned. You must have sinned because, you know, you, you know, God rewards people who don't sin. And you would still have your rewards if you were, hadn't sinned. And that was their argument, and Job had to disprove that argument throughout his throughout that book that he that that wasn't what it was. So right, you know that's right. not a, a new idea; it's a pretty old idea. <clears throat> well, and and I, I'm going to actually invest in that book I was uh, referring to and and uh, go beyond just the synopsis uh, because I think that you know capitalism uh, here in the United States um, goes back to the Pilgrims and and the and and Protestantism uh, and Calvinism and uh, I, I want to understand it better because. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's so much to, I mean, look, you know, not to say that Christianity is all evil. I mean, I'm not trying to imply that at all. Uh, I mean, you know, there are good Christians out there, obviously. Uh, But, you know, there's so much to, you know, so many ills of society to be laid at the feet um, of religions. You know, I mean, uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, left his church, you know, because he said, uh, you know, the church prevents women from reaching their full potential, and, and that's a sin. I mean, all the different, uh, I mean, the you know, they tell, you know, gay people they're an abomination. Uh, and, and, you know, and, I, and I'm really annoyed by these prosperity gospels, uh, you know, right now that uh, I think help keep us tied to capitalism, uh, which has gotten very, very predatory. And, uh, you know, the, in- the income disparity is just insane. And it, um, and, and I don't know, it, it, I don't know, I believe in transparency, you know, and we should call things the way they are. And if, you know, that's something else that needs to be laid at the foot of religion, then we ought to start talking about that more, you know. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that uh, going on out there, too, politically, where there's a lot of thinking that, that uh, is, was around in the 1920s and 30s as well, that people were born uh, as, as, you know, they were either born well or they were not born well. And if they were not born well, they weren't going to succeed in life. And if they were born well, they would be, succeed in life. And, and so there's, there's a lot of bias around that, this idea of wealth that says that if I have wealth, then I must have been one of those people who was born well, and that means that I'm a good person and these other people are unworthy. And so there's a lot of that that goes on back there too. Yeah, and I think um, if if you can so... Uh, easily judge someone as um, uh, unworthy, then th- you, that gives you license if you're in a position of power, uh, you know, to maybe dismantle the social safety net, you know, uh, to maybe, you know, cut food stamps or, uh, you know, give the, the chosen people the tax breaks, you know. Uh, I mean, it, because all of this bleeds into our laws and, you know, what we give license to in society. And um, I don't know, it just feels like it's it's way out of balance and nobody's, um, I, I don't know, it just feels like there's not a lot of thought going on. But, you know, who knows, maybe I'm just not looking in the right places. But uh, at least uh, from my vantage point, uh, it, it doesn't ever seem like the people who are at fault for causing the problems uh, ever get the blame, you know. Uh, there's always somebody scapegoated instead. Yeah, I agree with that. I, 
I think there's a, a lot to be said about this, uh, this, where it goes in terms of, uh, of you know, money and, and, and worth, that, that whole idea of combining the two together in some kind of mixture that me- is meaningful to those who have wealth. And, and I think there's an internalization of that whole idea among poor people, too, that they feel less worthy. And that's ancient. And I also think that one of the things that's happened in America right now is that the shadow of American consciousness has risen into our, our conscious awareness. That, you know, we formed America, the, uh, a, a bunch of Christians went out and killed a bunch of Native Americans in a genocidal movement uh, to take over that country because they called these people savages and they weren't Christian and they, 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 were, they were of the devil and they had to be killed. And so they killed millions of Native Americans, and that's where they formed America, on top of the, the graves of these people. And, and right. we, we, yet we go around talking about how we're the great, you know, the great nation, and we're so loving, and we're so kind, and we're the ones that take care of the rest of the world, and all this stuff is just hooey, you know. Right. And we've believed it for so long, and now what, what's happening is that shadow is rising into our consciousness, so now we're having to deal with it on a conscious basis instead of just pretending it away or repressing it away. And I think that's yeah. the collective thing that's going on right now is that we're having to really consciously look at the stuff that we've repressed. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely on the same page. Um, I gave a talk at the Goddess Temple uh, Sunday, and that was actually one of the things I talked about, that, you know, this American exceptionalism, you know, what has happened in our school system that we haven't told the truth about all of the dirty deeds that, uh, you know, America does. I mean, I'm talking about the sanitized version of Thanksgiving, uh, how we got Hawaii, uh, how indigenous women were forcefully sterilized, how African men were, uh, you know, uh, tested on, you know, without their consent, all the false flags to start wars, you know. Um, if, If those things, I think, you know, weren't so whitewashed, um, in our history books, um, you know, because I don't think you learn these sorts of things unless you get into political science or something in college, you know. I yep. mean, but if these things were were more common knowledge, then maybe we wouldn't be so quick to say American exceptionalism and think anything we do is um, is is righteous. Uh, because, like, like you, you know, something you just said uh, a moment ago made me think. Uh, that this in, in this this um, gives us license to go, you know, bomb some brown skin people in another country who have a different yep. god uh, because they have no value, you know. That's right. Um, That's just right. just like the native just like the Native American people had no value, you know, they're heathens, uh, you yes, know, and right. and we don't stop and think that you know the pilgrims wouldn't even have been able to probably survive if the Native Americans hadn't helped them. You know, um, right. no, no good, no good deed goes un- unpunished, as my mother used to always say. Yeah, yeah um, that's right. Uh, well, anyway, you know, let's uh, let's shift over to your to your book, Andrea. Um, your 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 latest book, "Letting Go of Good: Dispel the Myth of Goodness to Find Your Genuine Self." That is, you've got to unpack that for me. Yeah. Well, you know, when people talk about this struggle between good and evil, what people generally talk about is good. I mean, it's, it's evil. They don't talk about good. 
They don't talk about that end of the polarity. They talk about the evil end of the polarity, right? So I've done a lot of research over the years, uh, starting back in the 1990s, uh, on, on this whole idea of good and evil, this, this so-called battle between good and evil. And what I've found is even when people try to study it from a psychological perspective, they focus on evil. They don't focus on good. But what I understand is that if, there's a, if, there's, if there is a belief in such a thing as good and evil, then people can not only identify with evil, they can also identify with good. So they can say to themselves, I've got to be a good person because that's how I'll be a worthy person. Now, this is not consciousness, consciously saying that. Identities are formed early, early in life when we're looking for mirrors as infants. We're looking around at our family members, and we're looking at them as mirrors, and they're, say, they're, they're telling us nonverbally who we are, or who they want us to be, at least. And then we try to adapt to whatever it is that they want, because that's who we think we are, because we think they're our mirrors. So we, we, we formulate that identity pre-verbally. And we live out of it. So if I've got a parent, for example, this is just one of many examples, but if I've got a parent who needs, who, who just cannot admit to ever doing anything wrong and needs to project wrongness onto me when I'm the baby, then I'm going to figure that out pre-verbally. And I'm going to adopt, adapt that identity. And I'm going to be the wrong person. Now, I could live that out by actually acting out in bad ways quote-unquote bad ways, or I could move that out by trying to compensate for it by being a good guy identity. So the good guy identity is what I wrote this book about. So I didn't want to focus on the bad guy identity. I wanted to focus on the good guy identity. So the good guy is somebody who, on a deep, deep level, believes that their worthiness depends on them doing everything good. That they have to, uh, they have to be... Uh, taking care of other people, they have to be very responsible, they have to be on time, they have to make good grades, they have to, you know, they have to perform really, really well in order to be considered to be worthy people. And generally speaking, these people are run by guilt. So, I, you know, I have people come in and see me and they say, you know, you know, I feel guilty about everything. I had one client tell me that she felt guilty about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and she hadn't even been born yet. So, you know, it's wow. the idea of just, I'm run, I run my life by guilt. It, it tells me what to do. So I, I don't want to do something, and guilt comes along and says, yeah, but if you don't do that, you're going to feel really bad later. So I do it because I feel obligated to do it. And so these people live their lives out of obligation and duty and have to and ought to, and they don't even realize that, that they're, they're squelching their authenticity in the process. They're giving away their souls. They're not living into the, the genuine self. And so part of that comes from, uh, you know, our, our dogma and our creed that says that, you know, in order to be a good person, you have to be selfless. Well, I think a person who's selfless is a person without an, an awareness of self. And I think that's, that's a problem. And, uh, you know, in order to be a good person, you have to be very loving and kind all the time. Well, what does that mean when you're with a person who's abusive? You have to be loving right. and kind to that person who's abusive. So, you know, why does a woman stay with a man who's abusive? Very often what I've found is it's not because she's uh, masochistic, which is one of the theories out there that's still floating around, and it's not because she, you know, uh, uh, is, is scared or doesn't have enough money. It's often because she thinks that it's good 
to be forgiving and kind to this man who's abusive, and she thinks if she's just kind enough, one day he'll may, he'll maybe he'll stop doing it. And so there's right. a lot of magical things goes into it as well. So very commonly, good guys, the good guy identity gets involved with people who are abusive in some way, emotionally, physically, sexually, some kind of way, and they uh, live their lives attached to these people, trying, trying, trying to be good, 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 so that they can prove to themselves that they're worthy. And uh, it's not until that they start to either feel resentment or they start feeling exhausted or they start feeling something that they would consider to be a quote-unquote negative feeling that they begin to uh, to realize that this isn't working. And they very often come to me and they say, I'm so resentful and I, I don't want to be resentful anymore and you have to help me get rid of my resentment. And what I write about in the book is that resentment is actually our best friend because it can come up to say, listen, you're doing a lot of stuff you don't even want to do. You're doing a lot of stuff that's not authentic. You're not doing it because you feel compassionate or empathetic or or passionate or, or have a deep desire to do it. You're doing it because you think you have to, you ought to. If you don't, you're going to feel really guilty. That's why you're doing it, and that's a false reason for living. Um, right. So what, in the book, what I try to help people do in the book is get in touch with those so-called negative feelings, resentment, anger, fear, sorrow, those things that we typically call negative, and, and really begin to suss out the message that, that those feelings are trying to give us so that we can listen to that message and hear it and become more authentic as a result. Well, you know, that is so important, uh, what, what you're talking about in this book. You know, I mean, I've run into folks like that. You know, I, I, I kind of just call them the people pleasers. And they're sort of mm-hmm. just, I feel sorry for them because they're ripe for the pickings for the type of people who will come along and exploit them and take advantage of them, you know. And, um, and sometimes they don't even have the healthy boundaries to say no, you know. Um, this yeah. is this is this is too far. Yeah, they're very commonly people that were born with a, 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 a strong awareness of their empathic abilities, and so they can pick up the feelings of other people and 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 that's great. You know, that's a, that's a great ability to have is to be able to feel what other people feel. But the problem is they don't just feel it; they begin to carry it. They begin to carry it as if yeah. it's theirs to carry. And that's the problem. And so empathy can be a, uh, a blessing, but it can also be a curse. And in this case, it's a curse. Right, right. Um, so would uh, maybe just one or two ways to get unstuck from the good guy identity? Yeah, uh, beginning to listen to these feelings like, for example, anger. Um, people that live in the good guy identity just think it's awful to be angry. But what I say is that anger is, generally speaking, trying to say, I am here, I am real, and I matter. And so if they begin to listen to the anger, then it can say, wait, I'm really here, I'm really real, and I do matter. So what can I do to to, to authenticate that to myself? How can I matter more to me? How can I be more real to me? How can I uh, be really here to me? And, and they and they make the anger about them instead of about the other person, and then it becomes a way of becoming more authentic. Also, to listen to the other, our personal powers, which I I think our personal powers consist of our intuition, our power to discern, and our and, and our desires. Those are all three personal powers. We don't typically think of desire as a personal power, but it absolutely is. In that, if we listen to our desire, 
we we can begin to authenticate it, manifest it, make it real. And then and it's like, oh, I'm free now. I'm allowed to be myself now. I'm allowed to be who I am now. That's what people begin to say when they're allowed to authenticate their desires by manifesting them. So paying attention to your intuition, uh, it, it, it's a guide. It's an internal guide. It's meant to be a decision-making power. Paying attention to our discernment, which, again, I said was was our ability to observe something going on externally while at the same time feeling what's going on internally and then put the two together to make a decision. That's a real power, and if we can use that power, then it's free from the good guy identity. Um, so, yeah, those are some those are some good tools. Um, I can. Oops. Oh darn! Uh, I think somehow Andrea got disconnected from us, and I hope she calls us right back. I know that was not intentional. Um, while I wait for her to call back, that might take a minute or two. Uh, I'll take this opportunity to share with you. Um, uh, some uh, success. Oh, wait, there she is. She's back now. Um, here, let me uh, unmute her. Hi, you're back. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know how that happened. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, well, we're it's, And thank you for calling back because we're near the top of the hour and we're almost done. Uh, but I was saying um, I thought those were some great suggestions for getting unstuck from uh, being in that um, you know, that good guy or good gal uh, identity. Uh, but before I let you go, I promised listeners at the top of the show I was going to ask you uh, what Jesus said about reincarnation and um, and what is it about uh, mistaking Christianity in the end times. Um, so if we could maybe close with those two, um, you know, with, with those two topics. Well, uh, one of the uh, he said a couple of things about reincarnation. One was that he said Elijah. I mean that John, John the Baptist, was Elijah, um, and uh, so that's not you know that's discounted. I've talked to uh, Christians about that, and they just go, "Oh, poo poo." That just means he was just like Elijah. That doesn't mean he was Elijah. But if you look at the root language, he was saying he was Elijah. So that's okay. one of the examples. The other, the other was that. Uh, uh, there's a time in there where Jesus is walking along the streets and he sees a blind man and his disciples ask him, who sinned? This man was born blind. And they ask him, who sinned, his parents or the blind man? And so what they're basically saying is somebody sinned before this man was born. So was it the man who sinned before he was born? Now what they're actually saying there is this must be a reincarnation and he's paying karma for that. So they're asking Jesus that question and Jesus says no, not either one of those. What it is is the pattern of divinization. Now he doesn't use the word divinization. He says that this man, uh, th- this man was born blind, so that the, something like the glory of God could be manifested in him. I'm not saying that exactly right, but it's something to that effect. And so a lot of uh, Christians say, well, that means that he was that since Jesus was going to heal him, that that was the glory of God being manifested in him. But that actually is not what Jesus said because. He didn't want anybody knowing that he was healing people. He didn't. He wasn't going. He was telling people not to say, you know, what what he did. But actually, so what he what he was saying there was, this man's blindness is a part of his ability to become more of the divine self. It's a part of his struggle to become awake to who he is as a divine self. 
And so, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of information there that I could go into more depth with, but we don't have a lot of time for that now, so I'll just leave that there. With regard to the end times, uh, the, the language that's used in one of the parables that Jesus says that he actually tries to explain to his disciples is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And the, the tares are thrown at the end, in, in the end times into the furnace, um, and uh, the, the quote-unquote end times, into the furnace. But what the furnace is, is Caminos. And Caminos is uh, the place of the oven where you make uh, bread, uh, dough into bread or you make a, a, a clay into a pot. So it's a time of transformation where things become what they were meant to be instead of, uh-huh. you know, uh, uh, hell. You know, they think of it, hell is actually a time of transformation. And, and, uh, and, so, and then he talks about the end times, and the word that's used in the, in the root language there actually means um, ongoing, that it's, uh, that it's just incessant. There's this incessant time of transformation that's always happening for us as we become more and more aware of who we are as divine beings. So it's not an end time at all. That's the wrong language for that. It's a time, it's, a, it's the forever. It's what's always happening with us. Whenever we go through any kind of struggle and we're thrown into the furnace, or the part of our psyche is thrown into the furnace to be transformed, that's an ev- never-ending cycle that we are always going through to transform us. So hell is actually a period of transformation, and it's an ongoing thing that's going to happen for us until we are fully evolved. Wow. You know, uh, Andrea, it just makes me think, um, it, I guess in a way I'll just say it, it, it just makes me that much more annoyed and angry, uh, you know, with with church uh, with, with church leadership, because right there is a perfect example uh, where, you know, the church has the opportunity to tell us that, um, you know, we are constantly evolving, you know, it's our job to uh, become better versions of ourselves, um, and I I don't know. I guess I, that that isn't the message that that leaks through, you know. No. Um, no and no. no, go ahead. You know, it's because of that original translation. The original translation yeah. misinformed. Yeah. Yeah, it, it all sort of goes back to that, doesn't it? Uh, and yeah, it does. and you know they you know they you know want everyone to uh, you know be these disempowered sheep. Uh, and I don't know what could make me more annoyed than that. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, uh, Andrea, thank you. Uh, thank you for all this uh, really interesting insight tonight. Uh, I really enjoyed chatting with you. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, where your book can be found. Um, do you have anything uh, happening, uh, you know, coming up soon that you that listeners might want to know about? Uh, you know, your how do they find your radio show? Yeah. Um... You can go onto my website at www.andreamatthews.com, and, and, and Matthews is spelled with one T, so it's A-N-D-R-E-A-M-A-T-H-E-W-S.com. Uh, you can buy the books there. Uh, the book there, um, any of my books can be bought on that site, and um, the radio show can also be listened to in part there. Um, but you can also go to thevoiceamerica.com and. Um, uh, put in authentic living in the search bar and it'll come up and uh, you can listen to it there as well um, 
I do have an event coming up in December. I'm going to be teaching a workshop for uh, counselors uh, in the Birmingham area in Alabama and uh, uh, mental health counselors about uh, bringing spirituality to the clinical effort. And uh, so I do that quite a bit, and uh, you can keep up with those on my website as well. Those workshops are, are being conducted on, on my workshop on my web page as well. So pretty much everything you can find on my web page, you can contact me there as well uh, uh, by looking at the contact page. So okay. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, I just realized I uh, have to correct the spelling of your name on uh, on my site. So I'm I'm uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, well, Andrea, thank you so much uh, for all you're doing out there to try to set things straight. Uh, we need uh, we need folks like you out there, and uh, I I just enjoy what you're doing. And thank you for your time tonight. Um, it's been great. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, good night. Good night. So, um, just to mention Andrea's uh, book title again, it's Letting Go of Good, Dispel the Myth of Goodness to Find Your Genuine Self. Um, You know, she reminded me of uh, some things uh, that I've been reading that Eric Fromm uh, has been talking about. And, um, uh, you know, one of the things he said was that um, we want to escape freedom. And that sounds like a strange thing. You know, you wouldn't think we want to escape freedom. But Eric Fromm said that we either find ourselves uh, in one or, uh, one or, or the other camp. Uh, the first camp uh, is the authoritarians uh, who go about uh, trying to get people to conform. Uh, and the other camp are the conformers, uh, you know, the people pleasers, the ones that don't want to make waves. And uh, he talked about how both prevent us from being free, uh, whether we're the, you know, the ones uh, cracking the whip or the ones being whipped. Uh, And he said it prevents us from actually finding our uh, authentic self. Uh, He also said another interesting thing that I've been chewing on for a while is, uh, and I think this was kind of reflective in what uh, Andrea said about, you know, how... Uh, you know, uh, when we're children, you know, pre, pre-verbal, you know, we we sort of shape our psyches. Um, but anyway, Fromm talked about um, uh, we we don't ever know who we really are uh, because uh, we are so uh, busy uh, in this world being uh, hit with uh, propaganda, with brainwashing, uh, whether it be you know, our parents telling us who we are, the church telling us who we are, uh, whether we're trying to conform to some ideal to satisfy an employer so that we can get a job. Um, you know, the media tells us what we should like and what we shouldn't like. Um, you know, I think there's something to that. You know, he said we never really, you know, we, we, we can go through life never knowing who we really are And what really makes us happy, because we're just constantly reacting to um, all of this that, uh, you know, gets thrown at us from all all of these different areas. Um, And it really takes uh, someone who's in the being mode, uh, which 
you know, he professes would be so much better than the having mode that we're all living in. But if we could somehow um, get in this being mode, which calls for us to be much more aware, to concentrate more, to meditate, and a lot of other things. I may talk about this one night on the show in more detail. Uh, but it, I don't know, but it's worth thinking about, you know, uh, in those moments when you're soaking in the tub or you're laying in bed at 3 in the morning and you're staring at the ceiling in the dark. Um, you know, are we who we are? Uh, because it's our, it is our authentic self, uh, the person we really want to be? Or have we just responded to all of this outside pressure and stimuli that's been, you know, shoved at us through, uh, you know, marketing campaigns? And, uh, I mean, why else would we always need the, uh, you know, the next uh, most expensive $1,000 telephone? Uh, you know, uh, I know it's a status symbol, you know, obviously, but, um, you know, they tell us we need that. Do we really need that? Um, anyway, it, that's, a, that's maybe a topic for another day. But uh, it's, it, you know, this, uh, this idea that, you know, maybe we never find out who we really are and we never know what will really make us happy and really give us joy. Um, I think that's an important thing to ponder. So, um, okay, moving on. Um, I promised I would talk about uh, some solidarity success. And this is just a little snippet, too. So, um, you know, if you extrapolate this out beyond uh, the Daily Coast, um, I saw this uh, that crossed uh, my email today, and uh, da- the Daily Coast, which is a you know online media, uh, put this out with regard to um, having fortunately defeated the Republicans, uh, you know, to repeal uh, you know the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they talked about um, the effort of everyone out there coming together, uh, you know, help defeat it. And they said, um, and let's see, I'll just read what it says here. Uh, I'm not sure if the Daily Coast community has ever thrown ourselves into a legislative fight harder than we did this one. Consider, number one, letters. This year, just since March, members of the Daily Coast community sent over Republicans opposing the repeal of Obamacare, all from constituents. Phone calls. Daily Coast Community. Uh, Daily Coast Community made more than 250,000 phone calls to House and Senate Republicans opposing the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, information. Daily Coast articles about the fight to prevent the repeal of Obamacare, written by staff and community members, generated tens of millions of page views. Rallies and protests. Thousands and thousands of Daily Coast community members attended rallies, protests, and vigils opposing repeal. Money. All of our efforts cost us real money, but small donors raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to support us and allowed us to keep going full speed. Supporting allies. In support of the broader progressive movement, we signed up hundreds of thousands of people for allied committees, candidates, and organizations who fought just as hard as we did to prevent the repeal of Obamacare. So anyway, and this is just um, statistics from the Daily Coast. When you think about all of the other uh, folks out there, 
you know, who also were doing these very same efforts. Uh, this is what happens when we come together in solidarity. You know, it reminds me um, when George Bush was in office, um, junior, not senior, and he started talking about um, privatizing Social Security. Uh, he got so many phone calls to the congressional switchboard, it actually collapsed it, shut it down. And suddenly he stopped talking about privatizing Social Security. Um, I use that as an example often because um, it, was, it was so visceral uh, and, it, and it happened so quickly. Uh, we really do have to find ways to uh, not let ourselves be divided because in the end, you know, we are the 99% and it is the 1% that is making our lives miserable. And uh, we can't let ourselves be divided because when we stand together in solidarity, we win. So, you know, there's just one example. And no doubt we will have to continue to stand together shoulder to shoulder. Um, Okay, so Pat, the roving reporter, uh, she sent in an article that I think uh, most of my listeners would uh, be interested in. Uh, it comes from, uh, I believe, the ACLU.org uh, blog, uh, American Civil Liberties Union, and uh, this was written by Stephanie Hicks, uh, a former narcotics investigator um, who worked for the Tuscaloosa, Alabama Police Department. And the title of this uh, article is, My Police Department Vowed to Get Rid of Me After I Had My Son, So I Fought Back for Other Female Officers. Uh, so here, I want to read this to you because uh, it will make your blood boil. Uh, but this is what we women uh, go through. And here's just, uh, you know, one example of it. So Stephanie says, I love my job in law enforcement, but I was de demeaned, demoted, and discriminated against for choosing to be a mom. I was a police officer and investigator with the West Alabama Narcotics Task Force for five years before I was pushed off the job for breastfeeding my son. In that time, I worked my way up in the force, starting as a patrol officer and eventually becoming an undercover agent and training officer. Fewer than 10% of officers work undercover and train recruits. These were competitive positions and promotions that I worked hard to earn. But when I came back from maternity leave, everything changed. My supervisors told me I seemed changed, and she puts that in quotes, and suggested that it was because I had the baby blues. She put that in quotes. Friends and fellow officers overheard them complaining about the length of time I had taken off for maternity leave, which was the standard 12 weeks, referring to me as a stupid cunt and saying they would find any way to get rid of that bitch. Well, she says, I was demoted to patrol duty, which required me to wear a bulletproof vest, but my doctor advised me that women shouldn't wear these vests, which are heavy and restrictive, when breastfeeding. We aren't even supposed to wear a sports bra. Wearing the vest would put me at risk of infection or other medical complications and potentially reduce my supply of breast milk. Afraid of risking my own life or health or harming my newborn son, I asked for a desk job. 
The department denied my request, even though other officers were routinely given desk duty for other medical reasons. The chief suggested that I either not wear the vest on patrol or wear it more loosely. Both of those options would have been unsafe, and I wasn't willing to put my life at risk. I also wasn't ready to quit breastfeeding altogether. I struggled with the decision to leave my job because I loved it and my family depended on the income. I believe women can be good mothers and still go to work. I never intended to be a stay-at-home mom because I love to work and our family needs two salaries to live, but I felt I had no choice but to quit my job in order to keep breastfeeding my newborn son. I brought my case to court because I didn't want other women to be forced to choose between feeding their child and keeping their job. I took a stand and fought back on behalf of all women so no other moms would be put in this situation. My family has made great sacrifices for this fight. We have lost friends and colleagues, suffered great professional harm, and been subject to ridicule, mockery, and retaliation, but I wouldn't have done anything differently. I was thrilled when the ACLU and the Center for Work-Life Law took interest in my case and filed an amicus brief on behalf of 22 organizations. It confirmed that the struggle was bigger than just my case. My victory in court last week makes clear that the law requires all employers to provide equal accommodation for breastfeeding employees. This is the change working moms in the workforce have needed. As the British suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst said, quote, we are here not because we are lawbreakers, we are here in our efforts to become lawmakers, unquote. I'm proud to have played a role in making law that will help other working moms in the police force. So that's a great story, true story, uh, from Stephanie Hicks, and I thank Pat, our roving reporter, for sending that to us. Well, uh, dear listeners, that about does it for us tonight. I want to thank you for your listener loyalty, for tuning in uh, every week. Um, Have more great shows for you in the month of October. And uh, I hope you'll share the link to Voices of the Sacred Feminine uh, with your like-minded friends. So I will close tonight's show. Uh, with uh, Peace, Salom, Shalom by Emma's Revolution, but you'll get to hear that cut in its entirety. Have a great weekend. Peace, Salom, Shalom.
Yeah. 